David White writes this. It's a poem called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. They're not wishing for something else. In those moments that we're not wanting it different, not judging or wishing it away, we discover the jewel of bodhicitta, the awakening heart-mind, because we're here for it. We're here to realize who we are, what's happening. So it becomes part of the exploration to, to really discover so what stops us? What stops us from bowing our head as this man did when, when we experience these different waves of unpleasantness, of pain in our bodies, our fear, our restlessness? What stops us from agreeing to our experience? And one thing that, that pops up a lot for a lot of people is the sense that if we agree to what's here, it's like saying, okay, I'll let this will be here forever. It's like in some way that we're accepting that it'll always be this way. If we're agreeing to our own way of being addictive or insecure, it's like saying, okay, this is the green light. I'll just never change. It's so wonderful when I, uh, one of the best quotes in the universe from Carl Rogers, the psychologist, he says, it wasn't until I accepted myself exactly as I was that I was free to change. We think if we accept something that we're just going to get lazy. So we hold off for that reason. We hold off because in some way we think, well, it's true. This really is bad. And if I accept it, it's like, if I accept myself, it's like I'm denying the truth. I'm I'm living in denial. So we believe our stories that something's wrong. And accepting ourselves would be like we we were disbelieving what seemed really, really true. So a huge part of our practice here is to begin to recognize the stories that go on in our minds. I read somewhere, we have 60,000 thoughts a day, and 98% of them we had yesterday. <laughs> and I am suspicious about the science behind that, so I don't want to... But it's interesting. And we know that we live in this kind of cocoon of familiar thoughts, and we know that a lot of the messages we're getting, it's not like we're o- it's like a TV that's always changing channels, out of control... And some of them, some of the thoughts are useful, but most of them are not Discovery Channel, right? Most of them, most of them have messages that are not that useful to us. But we get very attached to our thoughts as they kind of map for how it is. And they keep us pacing in our cage. They keep us feeling alarmed. Frank Layden, Utah jazz president, on a former player 
I told him, son, what is it with you? Is it ignorance or apathy? He said, coach, I don't know and I don't care. (laughs) We don't always want to look deeper. We don't want to go under our thoughts. You know, our, our thoughts, even when they're painful, our stories about something is wrong with me, they give us a sense of orientation that we kind of know what's going on and we'd rather the familiar than not. So what happens when we begin to say, okay, thinking, thinking, and just relax open and let go of it? Often what we find, especially if they're one of those regular visitors, is that if we try to go back to the breath, it just pops up again. We just get resubmerged in the thoughts because there's some real charge behind them. So letting go of them is no easy thing. You might try it for a moment right now. Just sense what happens when you, you just close your eyes and see what happens if you touch yourself with the intention of really contacting yourself with tenderness to let the very feel of your touch be tender. And sense the difference that happens when we just allow ourselves to hold ourselves with that kind of kindness. It makes it possible to accept what feels unacceptable. You can relax your hand down if you'd like. I find the same thing with um, when I'm working with myself with the half-smile of the Buddha, that it's almost like by, by placing that smile on our faces, we're sending a message to our body that reminds us of love. It reminds us of what we've forgotten. And in remembering, because it's who we are, it's not something incongruent, we begin to relax back open into that. So the boundary to what we can accept is the boundary to our freedom. And in the moments that we begin to invite Mara to tea, that the anxiety comes up, and we go, okay, I see this, and then have that willingness to feel it. In the moment that grief comes up, and, and we completely say, yes, okay, let this be felt too, there's a profound shift in our sense of who we are. We shift from the the self that's been running, that's been hiding away, that's been trying to control, to the awareness that cares. Very basic shift. We're no longer caged in by our own reactivity. One teacher writes that upon realization, when we feel this kind of completeness and freedom, he says you can only put it in negative terms. Nothing is wrong with me any longer. Rumi writes this about it. This is a poem called Wax. When I see you and how you are, I turn my eyes away from the other. For your Solomon seal, I become wax throughout my body. I wait to be light. I give up opinions on all matters. I become the reed flute for your breath. You were inside my hand, but I kept reaching around for something. I was inside your hand, but I kept asking questions of those who know very little. 
I must have been incredibly simple or drunk or insane to sneak into my own house and steal money, to climb over the fence and take my own vegetables, but no more. I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. So this is the realization that frees us from being in this trance of small and separate, that frees us to live our our moments fully, to love fully, to be playful, to enjoy the beauty around us, really be at home in our moments. This is realizing our true nature. When we're no longer in that trance that something is wrong, we're free. So I started and described this tiger Mohini. And, and I love that story because it, the habits are so strong and it reminds us of that, that we can get a taste of realizing the truth that we really are loving and we really um, want to connect and we really belong and then forget and really lock into this, this misunderstanding that something's wrong with us. So there's a very strong habit of, of squeezing and twisting and pinching our secret self. Very strong. I find it really reassuring um, the words from the Tibetan Book of the Dead that say that the pure light of your true nature is only a split second, a half breath away. That even when we get caught in this trance, even when the points of the retreat, when you feel like, okay, so I'm really blowing it or I'm failing or I can't face this or this is too much, we're just potentially moments from really touching a sense of freedom. And if we just remember to pause, and this is really just to, just to stop for a moment, if we remember just to look and see, okay, so what is true? What really is happening right now? Pause. What's happening? And then to kind of soften the edge and just let the experience be what it is. Sometimes what it is is a lot of beauty. You might touch into the the rhythm of the breath or the green of the new green of spring or a breeze. But sometimes it might be difficult. And our practice is to meet that with kindness, with acceptance. And as we do, there is this real shift when we stop the war, stop fighting, we become like this great ocean that's cradling the waves of our own experience. We realize who we are. Let's just take a few moments to sit and just open to whatever the life of these moments is. So I was talking about this um, this whole path of acceptance. Last month I was teaching a retreat down in the Blue Ridge Mountains right near where I live. And um, then I met with a student in an interview and he was very despairing about how he felt his self-judgment, his kind of chronic self-judgment, was really trapping him in his life. 
he described it this way. He said, you know, I want to be close to people. I want to be creative. He's a writer. You know, I, I want to dance. You know, I want to live my moments. And I'm constantly bridled with this inner voice telling me I'm not okay. And so we started working with that and kind of asking, okay, so this has been around a long time. You know, what else do you notice about this? And tears came to his eyes as he described himself as, he said, I feel exactly like this tiger at the Washington, D.C. zoo named Mohini. Mohini's not alive anymore, but he knew the story of Mohini, and he told me. Now, Mohini was this white, regal, beautiful tiger that was housed in the lion den. It's a cement floor, 12 by 12, uh, iron-caged enclosure for years. And so Mohini just paced back and forth in in this cage. And then, uh, much like a story Jack mentioned the other night, the naturalists and the staff at the zoo created this huge, beautiful natural habitat, ponds, vegetation, um, just acres. It was lovely. And they brought her to the compound and released her in it. And she immediately went to one little corner and spent the rest of her days pacing back and forth a 12-foot path until the grass was completely bare. And that was the rest of her life. And that's how he felt. He felt like, and this is, I think we can sense this, that if we have a feeling of tragedy in our lives, it's because there's a possibility of being more free. There's a possibility of really uh, letting our love be full with each other and a possibility of being more spontaneous and playful and just awake. And yet we see our habits close us in. And so often the habits are ones where we're telling ourselves who we are and it's a small self. So this is a predicament. Susan and Adrian and I were talking the other day at lunch about kind of what does it mean to step outside the box of these beliefs we have about ourselves that in some way we're less than the fullness of who we can be. Because the suffering of it is that we really don't get to relax and trust our basic goodness and our beauty, the Buddha nature, the essence of our being, because we're so locked into an idea of something else. A kindergarten teacher was observing her classroom of children while they drew. She would occasionally walk around to see each child's artwork. As she got to one little girl who was working diligently, she asked what the drawing was. The girl replied, I'm drawing God. The teacher paused and said, but no one knows what God looks like. And without missing a beat or looking up from her drawing, the girl replied, they will in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Now she was stepping outside the box, yes? (laughs) So the Buddha clearly described the conditioning that keeps us feeling small. And it was in a very simple, elegant way, Jack described it a few days ago, that we are designed 
and it's biological, but this is our conditioning to chase after what's pleasant, to resist, pull back from what's unpleasant, and when it's neutral, to kind of go to sleep, to space out in some way. And so what he's basically teaching is that we chronically want life different than it is right now. We are basically, and this is our most basic kind of suffering, there's a sense that something's wrong. And it's really interesting as you move through the day, especially at retreat, because there's so much more of a precision and noticing, to sense that layer where there's kind of an assessment, something's wrong. It gets even more interesting when we start sensing how the something wrong usually is me. I'm wrong. It's not just that we're having painful feelings. It's not just that we're anxious. It's not just that anger's going on. Those things are all unpleasant. But the deepest unpleasant is it's a comment on the self, that the self's not okay. I'd like to read you a story about letting go that I find really helpful. In the 1950s, elite military pilots were testing rocket planes at altitudes where all the ordinary laws of aerodynamics no longer applied. This is um, in The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. He says, a plane could skid into a flat spin like a cereal bowl on a waxed formica counter and then start tumbling, not spinning and diving, but tumbling end over end over end. This happened a number of times, and pilots were recorded going into the final dive, that's the one that killed them, screaming into the microphone, I've tried A, I've tried B, I've tried C, I've tried D, what do I do next? And as it turned out, the more frantically they maneuvered, the worse the terrifying situation became. Finally, a solution emerged after an accident involving test pilot Chuck Yeager, who was battered, unconscious, and unable to do anything as he fell seven miles. He came into the denser atmosphere where it was then possible to put the ship into a spin and steady the plane and survive. So the answer, defying every bit of training that the pilots had received, was to sit there and do absolutely nothing. You just sit there and fall. As Wolf puts it, you take your hands off the controls. In fact, that was the only choice you had. So really, as we begin to go deeper into practice, we're training to not do, to stop controlling. Our thoughts are one of the main ways we try to control our experience. So it's a very kind of essential training ground, this practice of recognizing that we're thinking and then loosening the grip some. And it's a critical moment when we first wake up out of thoughts because all we'd be doing is putting our hands back on the controls if we drive ourselves into the breath again, if we tense up, if we judge ourselves for having the thought. All we're doing is continuing this kind of controlling, fearing, wanting cycle. So when we first wake up out of thoughts, it's a moment to pause. You might want to unfurl the mind. There's tension in the mind. Just relax, open the mind. Relax, open the body, and sense what's true. 
this is the pause. Wake up out of thoughts and just begin in the question, what wants attention? Just to see what's really here in the moment. Now, the Buddha inviting Mara to tea means that whatever's here in the moment, we're willing to feel fully. So when we wake up out of thoughts and sense what's here, feeling it fully means really being awake in our bodies. And that, too, is kind of a central part of our practice, to know how to sit down into these bodies and feel where these energies live that we actually spend as Joe Gobeck put it, our life running away from, or hiding from. Again, Joe Gobeck has a wonderful image. She describes it that these knots and fears and pains and soreness, kind of like an icy couch, and that we're learning to lie down and rest on this icy couch, and that our being just kind of takes its shape, molds to it, And that in that process of completely surrendering into what's here, we actually free up our energy to continue to unfold and express and move on. Rumi says, don't turn away. Keep your gaze on the bandage place. That's where the light enters. So this is the central part of our practice, to wake up out of the thoughts, or wake up out of the behaviors, whatever way we're kind of keeping a distance from what's difficult or uncomfortable, and having this willingness to kind of sit down in our bodies, to really open to what's there. Now, there is there was a question this morning about, well, when it's really, really intense, what about when it feels overwhelming? What about if the fear or the grief or insecurity or anger feels like it's just going to take over? How do we then open to it? And I think a very useful way to understand this practice of awareness is that, is in terms of maybe two lenses, that we're learning to contact what's here And we're also learning to sense the space it's happening in. We're learning to feel the waves of experience, but also remember the ocean of awareness. And when we just are feeling uh, crashed around by the waves, what that means is that we need more openness, more space. And there's a lot of ways to reconnect with the natural space of mind. But it's absolutely necessary. The Buddha talked about how our fear is great, but greater yet is the truth of our connectedness. Unless we can remember our belonging to a larger world, we don't have room for the intensity of what moves through us. So what do we do when it's intense? Sometimes, it's really, if, especially if we've been traumatized, it's actually most wise and compassionate to be very careful how much we open to what's here, to be really patient and gradual. If we're at retreat, to take walks and drink tea and ask for help from teachers when we're home, to talk to friends, to keep connected to a bigger world. Really, really necessary. 
and in an inner way. It's very helpful to listen to sound and see the space around us. Nature. In the most fundamental way to remember the ocean is really another way of saying taking refuge. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in Buddha nature, in the loving awareness that really is our essence. And if we can have a bit of a thread of remembering, we begin to have room to touch the waves of what's difficult as we move through our experience. This is Haviz. He writes, Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. Whether we use the word God, our beloved, our Buddha nature. The truth is that we each need to have a sense of what we belong to, the fullness of our own being, our own awakened heart-mind. Just a sense to be able to be with, bring this presence to what's right here, especially when it's intense. Another story that taught me a lot about this um, was when I was working with a woman who had just started practice and she had discovered her adult child had been abused as a child by her husband, sexually abused, and she hadn't known it and gone on for years. So as you can imagine, she was living in a place of amazing horror. I mean, She was just in this hell realm that she was either always exacting revenge in her mind or gripped by panic or lost in despair. The worst part was this self-recrimination, the the self-hatred. And so she agonized over her role, her unwitting role in her daughter's abuse. And after a while, after struggling with these demons and really feeling suicidal, she went to a Jesuit priest that was no longer active, an elderly Jesuit priest, and um, sat with him. And at first all she could do was weep, but as she began to calm down, she, she just described her story, described what had happened. And he gently, he took one of her hands in his and held it and he drew a circle right in the middle. So, and he said, this is where you're living. And it's a place of, of anguish, of screaming and kicking and horror for you. And you have to continue to feel this. But please, try to remember this too. And he put his big, warm hand over hers. And he said, this is the mercy of God. This is the kingdom of compassion. And if you can remember this, if you can remember this this greatness, you'll be able to live with what's going on and awaken your heart in the midst. So it's both experiencing just what's here and remembering that greatness. So for the first time, for this woman, for months, the pain was tolerable and she was able, it was still acute, but she was able to be with it. And for a while, every time 
she'd feel the enormity of her, of her hatred and anger and self-hatred. Um, she'd imagine this hand on hers. But after a while, and as she continued to practice mindfulness, she found that she could really sense, and she did it with her breath, she could sense as she breathed in that she was feeling exactly how the pain was, but as she was breathing out, she was letting go into loving awareness, into her own Buddha nature, and that that's what was holding her experience. It made it possible to accept and be with something that felt utterly unacceptable and unforgivable. This is the power of compassion practices. Compassion is to feel what's here with tenderness, that kind of movement of the heart. Now, there's ways that when our experience is really intense, insecurity, guilt, shame, fear, that just as this woman experience, we can begin to offer that to ourselves. I remember one year teaching here and, and one of the students came in describing being kind of um, absolutely ensnared again with self-judgment. Um, didn't matter whether when he was doing metta, he, was, he just felt like his heart was a stone. Whatever he was doing, he just was doing it wrong. And we started talking about how it felt to, to live with so much judgment. And he said, very, very painful. I said, can you feel where the pain is? And he could feel in his heart. And I said, well, what happens when you just touch your heart like that? And he put his hand on his heart and I said, can you, can you send a message? What would you want for that place of pain? He said, just that, that it knows I'm paying attention, really. So I suggested that through the retreat that whenever that judgment and pain came up, that he simply touch his own heart and send a message of presence. And he was sitting right up front and he spent the whole retreat with his hand on his heart. But at the end of the retreat, he you know, came into an interview and there was so much more freedom. He was developing a relationship with himself, which is really what we're all doing. Rather than feeling like the victim or trying to control our experience or be down on ourselves, we are learning to relate to our own experience with profound acceptance. I sometimes think of it as becoming the holder and the held. We don't do that much in this culture, touch ourselves in this way. And what makes it so radical is that because we're so unused to being tender towards ourselves. This Dharma talk, entitled Radical Acceptance, was presented by Tara Brock, at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California. So we've now completed three full days together. And as most of you have experienced, there really is a settling that's going on. Settling into a lot of different things. I think one of the experiences we have is because we're able to pay attention more closely and because we've cleared away a lot of our other doings, we can often open into all sorts of, uh, as Susan described, me describing it, weather systems. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And what many people in, in the groups today were describing was this, this sense that 
it didn't matter so much what was coming up, but really whether or not we're relating to it in a way that is okay, this is okay, I accept this, or in some way at war with our experience. I think that's the kind of critical piece that we keep finding in the Dharma, whether we're agreeing to what's here or in some way resisting. Remember the first retreat I came to here, and somewhere in the middle of the retreat, one of the teachers said that the boundary to what we can accept is the boundary to our freedom. The boundary to what we can accept is the boundary to our freedom. And I was in one of those places in my life where that one dropped in really deeply. I immediately started reviewing, in my experience, everything I wasn't accepting, starting with Right now I'm not accepting this kind of stabbing knife feeling between my shoulder blades to not accepting the fact that I had spent so much of the retreat in this kind of obsessive fantasizing to not accepting the fact that I was feeling anxious and restless. And then I, of course, enlarged the field and went home and started thinking about all the parts of my life I wasn't accepting there, including myself for being an imperfect mother. And, you know, it went on and on. And what was really amazing was I began to see very clearly that any time I sensed this not accepting, this kind of pushing away, I felt very solid, very small, very not okay. And then I started sensing the possibility of, well, what would it mean to be more accepting? And noticing, and I went through the rest of the retreat noticing how in the moments where I had no argument, that's one, one way to put it, just, it was just however it was, was okay. There wasn't that sense of smallness, of being this kind of deficient self. The Buddha's story is really a wonderful archetypal myth about facing the shadow. It's really wonderful when you think about it. it. It's kind of classic that instead of running away, instead of indulging in pleasures, instead of pursuing austerities that were really in some way a, a denial of life, the Buddha put it all down. As Susan described so beautifully last night, he just stopped. He became still, which is really the pause that's necessary if we're to open to the life we've been running from. And in that pause, in that night under the Bodhi tree, he brought a tremendous quality of presence and compassion to the forces of Mara, to greed, hatred, delusion, to all the difficult experiences that our habit is to run from. What's interesting in the Buddha's life is that this night under the Bodhi tree of facing the shadow was not a one-shot deal. Wouldn't it be nice if we could say, oh, I've already faced my shame, I'm done with that, you know. But then try spending a few days with your family of origin, and it all kind of... So for the Buddha, Mara kept reappearing through his life. And of course, when Mara would reappear, the Ananda, the Buddha's loyal attendant, would 
say, well, what do you want? But the Buddha said, no, 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 no. And he, he would say, I see you, Mara. And then invite Mara into tea. It's really a wonderful illustration of the path of awakening to bring these qualities. I think of it when the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. That's the, really the wing of, of clear seeing, of understanding. And then when he invites Mara into tea, it's the wing of, of compassion or love. And in these, this practice, one way of kind of sensing the fullness of it is that, like a bird with two wings, we need to see what's true and hold it with compassion. And that's how the Buddha encountered Mara, seeing what was there, inviting, being willing to fully be with. So a story about a yogi that um, I felt did that in such a beautiful way. Um, He was at a retreat I led many years ago, co-led with a number of other teachers, and had come to retreat in the mid-stages of Alzheimer's. And he was, he had his wife with him to help him because it was so difficult for him to get dressed and to eat and to function. But um, still, he did the retreat in a wonderful way. He, he at times, though, would completely lose track of where he was, where he was going. It wasn't like he kept the schedule perfectly or anything. But we met in our interview, and, and um, I was kind of stunned because he was so upbeat. He had a kind of twinkle in his eye and some humor, and yet he completely recognized what was going on. He told me how he'd be talking to someone and get completely lost. And um, I asked him how it was possible. I was pretty straightforward. How, how you're dealing with this this way, how is it possible? And he said, I don't think that anything's wrong. He went on to describe, and I should let you know that he had been practicing a long time. He'd been sitting for decades. Long time yogi. And he had also gave some talks on the Dharma in different places. And he described how just at the beginning, when, when he was first diagnosed and things, first symptomatic, he was asked to give a, a talk at, to a large group. So he went, you know, he prepared his talk and he, he sat down in front of them. And then right before he began speaking, he went completely blank. So blank that he didn't know where he was or who he was or what he was supposed to be doing or why all these faces were looking at him. Imagine, you know, pretty amazing. So what he did was he kind of just started naming what was going on. Confused, terrified, lost, heart pounding, shaking, humiliated, you know, just naming, naming. And each time he'd name, he'd kind of bow. It was like he was just this and this. So scared, so ashamed. And then it kind of, and then he kind of quieted. He said, "Quieting, quieting, sad." And then he kind of looked around and he said, "I'm sorry. I don't know what else to say." And and of course, the students there had tears in their eyes, and they told him that it that nobody had ever taught him dharma that way. You know? He didn't make the natural unfolding of what was happening in his life wrong. And imagine, I mean, we hold so tightly to our minds, 
and to our bodies. Um, a lot of freedom in that. And then when confronted with it, just to have that willingness, real courage, just to say what was going on. So a lot of freedom. The first retreat I sat here that Jack was leading, Jack read this by Jules Pfeiffer. I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's walk, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. (laughs) A few years ago in the Washington Post, they have these t-shirt awards they give, and the winning award was, I have occasional delusions of adequacy. That's... So I was was up in New York giving a talk on acceptance and discussing what I am here, and one of the people in the room handed me a cartoon. It was a a therapist saying to a client, well, these feelings of inadequacy are very common amongst the inadequate. (laughs) (laughs) So it's funny, and yet here's what's what's real. that when we get insecure, it confirms our notion that something's wrong with us. That's what ends up going on. And we bring the suffering of not good enough into spiritual life. We each do it. Whatever our, our kind of personality design is to strive and to try to compensate for what's wrong, we, we live it out in spiritual practice. Now, I can tell you that in my own story, I, you know, went, when I was about 20 years old, I joined an ashram, and my idea was really to purify myself. And I had this notion that if I really worked hard at it, it would take eight or ten years. <laughs> no. <laughs> but anyway, so in this ashram, we'd get up at 3.30 in the morning, and we'd take cold showers, icy cold showers, and spend two and a half hours doing yoga and meditation and chanting and prayer, and usually feeling pretty good from that. That feels pretty good. And then work through the day. And I'd notice as the day went on, I'd get increasingly, like myself, neurotic and striving and insecure. And, and so then the day would end and then you wake up again and start again. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing. Well, many spiritual traditions reinforce this notion that something is wrong, we're impure, and that we need to strive to be different. You know, it's ripples from the Garden of Eden. You're intrinsically not okay. You get kicked out. And then you spend the rest of life trying to redeem yourself. This is Garrison Keeler. He says, My ancestors were Puritans from England. They arrived here in 1648 in the hope of finding greater restrictions than were permissible under English <laughs> law at that time. <laughs> Carl Jung had a wonderful description of the maturing of spiritual practice. He described it as, from in a, in a less mature way, we're kind of climbing a ladder to perfection. And he says, as we wake up more, we realize it's really not about that. It's really about turning around and, and embracing this world in all its messiness and confusion, in all its beauty and mystery, pain and sorrow, 
So he says it's not a, a ladder towards perfection, it's a path towards wholeness, which I think is a really wonderful way to consider it. And this really is our practice here. If you just, as we kind of reflect on the instructions again and again, it's whatever arises, can we meet it with a kind and accepting presence? Joko Beck writes this. She says, The secret of life that we are all looking for is just this to develop through sitting and daily life practice the power and courage to return to that which we have spent a lifetime hiding from, to rest in the bodily experience of the present moment, even if it is a feeling of being humiliated, of failing, of abandonment, of unfairness. But to return to that which we've spent a lifetime hiding from, Another wonderful question at any moment, because we're so conditioned to to pull away from what's difficult, is to ask, so what am I hiding from? There's no freedom if we're trying to get away from any part of ourselves, any, any experience within ourselves. What I'd like to continue to talk about tonight is really the power of awareness, of an accepting kind of presence to help us wake up from the trance that has us, and this is the painful misunderstanding, believe that we're not okay, that has us believe that something's wrong with this moment, and therefore compelled to, as one person in a group today described, just constantly be leaning forward thinking that the next moment contains something that this moment does not. The power of awareness to really arrive and have that experience Susan described of of enough, the preciousness of the moment. For me, in these last many years of practice, probably one of the most useful revelations was how whenever I was feeling fear or grasping, I was also feeling like something was wrong with me. That that was the the basic layer going on of aversion, that I'm not okay. And what I kept discovering was, when I wasn't seeing that, it ruled me. It was the universe. I'm a not okay self. Very seductive, very convincing. But if I could begin to see it, oh, okay. So now, the identification of this fear means something's wrong with me, it could begin to loosen. And I've noticed it in working with others now, incredibly, how much, how pervasive the uh, way of moving through the day feeling basically something is wrong with me. This is through the internet, so take it with a grain of whatever. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, when, through no fault of your own, something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, 
If you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you are probably a dog. One of the most interesting questions just to pop into the brew at any given moment is, am I accepting myself as I am? Am I accepting this very moment? Just to check and then discover, is there some tension in the body that's resisting how it is? Is there some leaning forward to something else, something different, something more? the third Zen patriarch, described that for us to be at one, to be in harmony with all things, is to be without anxiety about imperfection. And I love that phrase. I've heard it. It's one of those phrases that doesn't matter how many times I hear it. There's still something in me that when I can say, okay, so what would that be? To be without anxiety about imperfection not anxious about our conditioning to grab onto things or try to control life, our conditioning to uh, judge each other, just, just to not be anxious about all that. It's challenging. You know, we all have an idea about what it means to be a spiritual person or a good person. We do. We have a, a kind of laundry list of, you know, being generous and being patient and being selfless and being compassionate. You know, each one of us, when we're honest with ourselves inside, we, we go through the day often monitoring, and there's usually a question we're asking, which is, how am I doing now? And there's usually a gap. There's this kind of like, it's like a invisible toxic gas we're breathing where we sense this gap, like not quite good enough. So I call this the trance of unworthiness, that we kind of are in this idea that we're not quite there yet, that we have to try harder, do better, be different. It's very pervasive in our culture because there's so little innate sense of belonging. We're not part of a tribe, and there's not not such a sense of, of being together in an assumed way, so we have to prove ourselves. And we each grew up being given standards to meet. Every one of us, even by the most enlightened parents, the standards to be special or to be really bright or to be really attractive or to achieve in some way. And so that just sits on us. To, to, be belo- to feel belonging, we need to feel that we're making it in those ways. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.